Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Khan, founder of Being Patient. Um, today, we're going to talk about a phenomenon, <laughs> phenomenon uh, called being skinny fat. Um, what that is, is a condition where you look like you're thin, but you actually have um, the, you've lost the ability to put on muscle. So technically you're considered um, fat in a way, although you appear skinny. So joining me uh, right now is, um, we're, we're pleased to have Dr. James um, Galvin. He is a professor of integrated, um, uh, integrated Medical Sciences at Florida Atlantic University, uh, joining us from Boca Raton. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dr. Galvin. Thank you, thank you for having me. So I made a failed attempt to really uh, describe what is skinny fat, from, but from a scientific perspective, uh, tell us really what it means to be skinny fat. Sure, so <clears throat> the, the medical term for that is called sarcopenic obesity. That's, that's a hard concept, so let me try to explain each part. So the obese part's probably a little bit easier for people. Obesity means to have uh, above the normal range of body fat. So your percent body fat is above the ideal range. Um, and then when you get, so you're overweight at that point, and then when you cross a certain level, then scientifically or medically you're considered obese. The sarcopenia part's a little bit harder to understand. So, um, Sarcopenia is the age-related degeneration of your lean muscle mass. Um, and so your muscles are really important, not only to give you strength and help you get around, but they serve other functions. They help regulate your insulin levels so that they can reduce the, re the chance of developing diabetes. Um, and they release growth factors that support your brain health. Um, and so when we're talking about sarcopenic obesity, it's people who are both gaining fat and losing muscle. Um, and so uh, so we, we use the term skinny fat to help people start to grasp the concept uh, of it. But I, as we were mentioning off camera a little while ago, we're really not talking about the super skinny person who doesn't have a lot of muscle. Um, these are people who, you know, don't look obese. They're, they're a little, on, you know, a little overweight. They look a little doughy. You know, they don't look very uh, toned. Um, but it, the bad combination is they have fat with a lack of muscle, and, and that's where the problem becomes. So are people born this way, or do they become more susceptible as they age? They generally become more susceptible as they age. I mean, some people have trouble building muscle. It's a lifelong problem, and there are certain body types that it's very, very difficult uh, to do this. So those, they're called ectomorphs. Um, so they have you know, very little muscle mass. Um, and that's a lifelong thing. Um, but the uh, but what we're really talking about here is someone who had fairly normal muscle mass, um, and then as they age, they start to lose muscle and gain fat, which fortunately a lot of people gain fat as they get older, but this combination, it can be potentially problematic. So you have done a study which links why this condition is bad for our brains. So tell us a little bit about your research and what you found out. So we've actually been exploring a number of factors to try to understand the risks for developing diseases like Alzheimer's disease. Um, I mean, one of our goals is instead of waiting for people to develop the disease and trying to do something about it, let's figure out what causes them to get the disease and try to attack from that end. Um, so we've been interested in physical performance and the risk of Alzheimer's disease. 
we know that as people develop Alzheimer's disease, they become less physically functional. Um, we want to answer the other side of the chicken and egg question. You know, does the lack of physical activity increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease? And so our first study, we looked at a condition called sarcopenia. So we looked at just muscle mass by itself. And we found that people who have uh, sarcopenia had a three to six fold increased risk of having problems with their memory and thinking. Um, and then we've looked at obesity and we saw a, a mild effect, but not a very strong effect. And that was a little bit different than some of the, the literature that was already published that obesity was a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. So then we went back and looked at, well, what happens if we break people into four groups? So people who have normal fat and normal muscle, we'll call those normals. People who have normal fat but low muscle, that's sarcopenia. People who have normal muscle but high fat, that's obesity. And then people who have both low muscle and high fat, and that's sarcopenic obesity. And we found something really interesting is that the people who were purely obese, but they had normal muscle mass, were just a little bit different than the healthy controls, but not by very much. Then the people who had sarcopenia had more problems, but the people who had both sarcopenia and obesity, they had a greatly increased risk of having difficulty with various uh, cognitive functions, particularly problem-solving executive kind of functions. Um, so we think a lot of the studies that talked about obesity before we're really talking about sarcopenic obesity rather than just pure obesity because they never considered the role muscle may play. So what exactly is that role that, that muscle plays? Yeah. So muscle does a lot of important things. Uh, so obviously it helps us be physically fit and get around and active. Uh, but the muscle releases chemicals that may help support the growth and health of other uh, organs like the brain. These are called trophic or growth factors. Um, and a normal function of muscle is to release these factors. And the brain releases factors that then support muscle. So it's a bi-directional relationship. Um, and we think as you lose muscle, you also lose the, the production of these growth factors. And that may have consequences on brain function. When you combine that with the, the fat, the adipose tissue, um, we think of adipose tissue as kind of being just, you know, just fat but it actually is a metabolically active organ. It releases inflammatory markers. These are called adipokines. The name's not important, but so the fat relieves muscles, uh, releases compounds that are inflammatory. The muscle releases compounds that support growth. Well, if you have more inflammatory markers and you have less growth factors, this may have really bad consequences on your overall brain health. And we think that that's the, that's the key and puts people at a great risk for developing diseases like Alzheimer's disease. Do people have different types of fat? Uh, yeah, I, I was told by a doctor there's actually different types of fat. There's some that are easier to, to lose than others. Yes, so that's absolutely true. Um, so uh, you can think about the fat sort of in three pools, right? So um, there's something called brown fat. Um, and so this is the babies have more of this. And this is the fat that allows you to shiver and helps maintain your, your body temperature. Um, as we get older, we lose most of the brown fat. The brown fat's actually good for us. Um, but then the rest of us have fat, and we can think about that in, in two places. So um, there is body fat. That's the fat that's under your skin, the subcutaneous fat. 
So you know, around your face, under your neck, you know, in the folds of your arms, um, in your legs, um, and that sort of gives you that that's that cellulite kind of look. That that's that's the subcutaneous fat, and then there's the fat that's around the organ. So it's on the inside, and it surrounds the heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys, and that's called visceral fat. Um, so the if you had to find a real villain, it's the visceral fat. Because that's that that's the one that's really causing a lot of problems. That's the one that's metabolically active and releasing all these inflammatory markers, and that's the one that's really hard to lose. Um, and is that true um, in terms of our brain health too? Is that type of fat the more dangerous one for our brains? Yeah. So when we looked at the difference between sort of your subcutaneous fat and your visceral fat, the 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 culprit was the visceral fat. That's that's where the action is occurring. Um, and unfortunately, that's also the hardest pool of fat to lose because um, you can diet and lose the subcutaneous fat, but it's much more difficult. You really have to calorie restrict almost to get down on the visceral fat. And that makes it a very difficult thing to lose once you start to build it. Um, so people on a ketogenic diet, is that coming from the, the visceral fat um, when you really reduce the number of calories and carbohydrates to a point where you're starting to burn energy from your fat cells? Um, does that come from, from your visceral fat? Well, some of it may come from the visceral fat, but, you know, the, the body is a really smart thing and it's going to get energy at the easiest source to get it, right? Um, and so if you are very low carb and you're switching to largely um, fat to supply energy, it's going to go to the readily accessible pool and that's going to be a lot of your subcutaneous fat. So, so uh, it's not it's not easy to utilize the visceral fat. That, that's what makes it so hard to lose. So when you were conducting these studies, how did you um, measure cognitive um, ability? So we used two ways to measure cognitive ability. One, we used interviews, so we did detailed interviews with people and, and an informant, someone who knows them well, um, and tried to capture how different they are now from where they used to be. Um, so it was a, a report-based uh, assessment. And then we gave them pencil and paper tests. Um, and these pencil and paper tests captured different domains of, of memory and thinking. Um, so problem-solving, uh, visual uh, construction skills, math, language skills. Uh, so we, we looked at, at different measures. Um, and the ones that were most associated with the problems with uh, the skinny fat or the sarcopenic obesity were the executive function, the problem solving skills. So how can we relate that type of information to the onset of a disease like Alzheimer's disease? So while most people think about Alzheimer's disease as a memory problem, and it is a memory problem, so that's a, that's a, that's a good thought, um, it's not just a memory problem. It really is affecting lots of domains. And when you carefully study people and you see what's changing in people even before they become symptomatic, so if you follow them for a long period of time, those executive skills, attention, problem-solving um, decision-making skills are actually one of the first domains to change. People just don't necessarily recognize that early on. They do recognize when, oh, I can't remember that piece of information, um, but that may not necessarily be the first feature. It may actually be more of this executive attention uh, change that's occurring. 
And, and that's what we found associated with the, the changes in body composition. Um, that tells us that if we could come up with an intervention that would affix the body composition, we might be able to head off the very early signs of a disease like Alzheimer's disease. So in a scenario like this one, when we're talking about skinny fat, um, which is more important for the brain? Is it putting on muscle or losing the fat? You know, I would say the more difficult answer is it's both. Um, and so what we do during our assessments is we use uh, measured body composition and we try to figure out what the ideal weight or the idealized weight is. Um, of course, no one can hit their ideal, but it gives us a target. And so we, when we model out what you are and what we'd like you to be, we can get an equation of how much fat you need to lose and how much muscle you need to gain. Um, and of course, as soon as you lose a couple of pounds of fat, the equation shifts. So it, it's, not a, it's not a defined number, but we can get an idea of like, if we're going to start today, what we need to do. And so that is, you know, talking about nutrition. I don't like the word diet. Diets ultimately fail. People can't diet forever, but they can take on a, a healthy nutritional plan. So we talk a lot about nutrition. Um, and then we talk a lot about lifestyle, so how we can increase your physical activity, and that's a combination of aerobic exercise, like treadmill, running, things like that, anaerobic exercise, that's lifting weights or using uh, those resistance bands, and then flexibility training. If flexibility is not in there, so yoga, tai chi, then you really don't maintain the, the gains that you get from lifting. Um, so we, we talk about a balanced approach to physical activity and we talk about nutrition and, and then we approach the person like that and we individualize it based on the, the person. So we have a question um, from one of our viewers about genetics. Um, how much is, um, is this genetically predisposed? Um, you know, are, are people more susceptible to being skinny fat than others, or is it something that you have complete control over uh, with diet and exercise? Well, I learned a long time ago that I'm in complete control of almost nothing, right? So there are a lot of factors that come into play. Um, so I'm gonna talk about genes in two ways. So there are some genes that cause things, but those are rare. Then there are genes that increase your risk of something, which means that it doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it sort of predisposes you to it. So you need to take a more active approach to try to battle that. Um, so if your parents were thin and muscular, you're, dis you're predisposed to being thin and muscular, but that doesn't mean you will be. Um, likewise, if your parents were obese, that predisposes you to being obese, but it doesn't mean you will be. Um, so a simple analogy is that you know, if you look at all of the professional football players, many of their children don't become professional football players, right? So while they have the good gene pool, they don't, that doesn't always translate into them being you know, the offensive lineman that their, their father was, right? Um, but you know, so you have some traits and you can build upon those traits, but it's not a guarantee. Um, so I think what we try to do is look at each person as an individual and then figure out how we can adjust that person's risk factors. In, um, in the study that you conducted, um, how many people did you study? Uh, how many people participated? And um, what was their profile? Were they you know, mild cognitive impairment or diagnosis, early, early Alzheimer's, or were they just 
any type of person. <laughs> so we had recruited about 500 people into the study. Um, and then when we went through the data, there were people had missing, missing data points and stuff. So the paper we published had 353 people in it. Um, they were pretty diverse. So we, it was about roughly a third uh, white Caucasian, uh, about a third African-American and about a third Hispanic. So we had a, a nice racial and ethnic mix that allowed us to look at some of those features. Um, we had both men and women in the study. And, and the mean age was 60 in the 60s. Um, so they were, um, and it ranged, you know, from people in the, the mid 40s up to people in the 80s. Uh, by and large, they were either cognitively normal or they had some very mild cognitive changes. Uh, for the most part, we did not have people who had Alzheimer's disease in this project, right? Because we we're trying to find out risk for Alzheimer's disease. And so we don't have people who already have the disease in the study. Um, there are a few that got in, but by and large, that's not the case. Um, so it, it's right at that, you know, that midlife period um, was most of the people in the study. Um, and again, mixture of men and women and a mixture of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. So how, how long um, did the study go on for? And how do you determine if a person is, you know, cognitively normal, how do you determine whether their memory is getting better or worse in that period of time? I mean, because, right. you know, let's, we all have days where I'm like, oh, I can't remember anything, right? And then there's other days where I, I'm fine. Yeah, these are great questions. So the study that was published was cross-sectional, which means we're looking at just one time point. Um, we are following people longitudinally, so following them on, on an annual basis, but that's not in this report because um, we're trying to see what the what our interventions might do. But at this point, we're just reporting the, the relationship. Um, and so we test memory um, really in two ways. Again, one, we talk to the person and someone who knows them well, and we have the person do some performance test. You're right, because everybody has a bad day. Um, and if you're having a bad day or missed your cup of coffee, you might not do it as good on the test as you would have another day. On the other hand, if a person who knows you well says, well, I've known him for 10 years and he's not the same, then that trouble you're having on the pencil and paper test matches the report that things are changing. Um, so then we put that together with that's called consensus. So we take all of the information together and we derive a, um, a diagnosis uh, based on all of the information available. We don't rely just on how you did on the test uh, because, again, you can have a good and a bad day. So, um, again, what was the time period that you kept track of, of these people for? So the, the, we've been following people for several years, but this report is looking at their baseline exam. So their first examination, trying to understand risk factors. And so whether you're normal, sarcopenic, obese, or have skinny fat, sarcopenic obesity, um, at that point in time when we see you the first time, how does that relate to how you're going to do on your test? Uh, so it's a, it's a one-time point study. The data was collected over several years because it, you know, takes a while to evaluate, you know, over 500 people. Um, but the, the, this study is a one, one time point study. Um, we are now continuing that study, looking at seeing um, if we put people on different plans, exercise plans and nutritional plans, what happens to them. Um, so what's not published, and I can tell you a little bit about that, is that the more 
people adhere to the plan we're giving them, the better they do. So if they follow the nutrition plan and follow the exercise plan, do some of the other things we talk about in the project, um, then we're seeing that their memory is sort of stabilizing or showing some improvement and their weight goes down. Um, muscle mass is harder to gain as you get older, but they're, they're not losing any more muscle. So they're stabilizing that. And so if their muscles stable and their fat's going down, then their, their condition of skinny fat starts to improve. How do we know though that this is just not because people, when people exercise, I mean, exercise is, is probably the number one thing that's named to prevent, um, you know, brain brain diseases like Alzheimer's, like exercise is the one thing everyone says, you know, if you're going to just do one thing, start exercising every day. Um, so how do we know that when they're on these programs, it's not actually the exercise that's benefiting? I mean, how, how can you isolate that? Because it's a, you know, your, the state of your body is, doesn't change quickly, right? But if you start to all of a sudden do a lot more exercise than you used to be, could it not possibly be that the exercise is having a positive impact? I mean, I, I'm a runner and every time, and when I miss my runs, I can't concentrate, you know? So I actually see an impact in my focus and behavior when I don't go on my run. Right. Um, well, exercise potentially is a, is a, is a risk reducer for Alzheimer's disease. Um, I think the flip side is that there are many people who are athletes who develop Alzheimer's disease and they exercise their whole life and they develop Alzheimer's disease. So exercise by itself isn't going, isn't going to be a cure. Um, I think if people haven't exercised, putting them on an exercise program has clear brain health uh, and protective or, or um, preventative effects. But um, the, the activity by itself is not sufficient to eliminate the disease because then no athlete would ever develop Alzheimer's disease, and that's not true. Um, so I, I think uh, it's really a combination, just like you know, there are people who eat vegan, plant-based diets. They have very low body fat. They, some of them still develop Alzheimer's disease. So it's not just exercise. It's not just body fat. There's a lot of factors. Um, and people aren't experimental mice or rats, right? You know, you, you can't control everything about them. Um, so the idea is we try to identify things that we can have an impact on and we try to design interventions to address those things we can change, realizing there are things that I can't change. I can't change your age. I can't change your, your sex. I can't change your uh, family history. But I can change your body fat, your muscle mass, your glucose levels, your insulin resistance, those things we can do. Um, and so we try to do that and we try to see which combination seems to be the most powerful. So are you looking at this as really just one? I mean, a lot of scientists now say it's not going to be one magic pill. Um, it's more, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of different things that we do uh, to improve health and, and try to prevent um, brain disease. So do you think that this is just really one factor? And I guess my next question is, like, what is this? Where will this take us with research? I mean, is it is it one piece of the puzzle? Does it need how much more evidence? do we need and um, what would this mean um, in terms of future research? Right. Well, that was a lot of questions. So, um, <laughs> so it's one piece of a big puzzle. Um, and so 
our research has really shifted um, to the prevention side. Um, and I think that diseases like Alzheimer's disease will be difficult, if not impossible to cure, but I think it's very likely we can prevent them. Um, and Benjamin Franklin said an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure back in the 1700s. And it's absolutely true. Why wait for a disease to happen and then try to do something about it? Why not try to figure out what puts people at risk for disease and do everything we can to reduce that risk? So our program has really become looking at the person as an individual. So these are not group, these are not group experiments. Each person is their own experiment, essentially. Um, and what we do is we develop a personalized risk profile, and then we use the principles of precision medicine, like they do in cancer therapy, to try to design a personalized prevention plan. So that includes nutrition, exercise, but includes cognitive activities. It may include vitamin replacement, depending on what their, their needs are. Um, it includes social engagement. It may include psychotherapy. It may include medicines. Right, So we might identify conditions that we didn't know about and have to treat them. Um, so I don't think that just exercising is going to be a cure. I don't think that just eating good, healthy food is going to be a cure. I think it really is, um, just like everyday life is really a combination of lots and lots of things, I think our approach to these diseases is going to be a multimodal approach. That certainly does seem uh, to be the way of the future. You're not the first person we've heard uh, say that. And, um, you know, again, just another piece of the puzzle, which is so important for um, prevention and what we can do really to maintain brain health um, and think about it before we get symptoms of, of disease. Um, Jim Galvin, thank you so much for joining us um, and sharing your research with us. Uh, we would like to keep abreast of, of what you're doing. Um, and please let us know in future uh, what you do learn because it's of great interest to our community. All right. Well, great. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Great. Thank you so much. Okay.